According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we're looking at verses 9, 10, and 11 this morning, the final verses for this paragraph. The section in verses 3 through 11 is called, uh, Have This Attitude, really picking picking up on uh, verse 5, Have This Attitude in Yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so all of these verses, we've been looking at the attitude, the attitude that has been one of maximum humility, that he emptied himself, that he laid aside his privileges. And uh, being the pinnacle of humility then is the basis for which the Father uh, bestows upon him the name that is above every name. And he receives that name because, uh, again, it's causative, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we want to understand that uh, for what it's saying. And yet we don't want to lose sight of the grace. And I gave you something to chew on from Wednesday night. Has that been haunting you? Have you been thinking about it? that uh, when the Father bestows on him, it is a grace bestowal. It is grace. And uh, so we're going to have to talk about that. On what basis then uh, do we we serve on a grace basis and we're rewarded on a grace basis? And uh, even when the reward is caused and even when the reward is proportional, we we don't want to depart from the realm of grace. Okay, And, And in some parts it's hard to do. Um, and so I'm going to open them with prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll get into that and, and trust the, the Lord will lead us. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth. Thankful that, uh, Father, the, the grace is ours because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for uh, the truth of your word and that as we study to show ourselves approved, Father, you are faithful that your, the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit will lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. So we call upon that faithfulness and look forward to the feast you prepared. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, in the uh, structure of this, then, we really have six main points for uh, this paragraph, and then point six is the one that gets expanded, so that's where we presently are. But we're dealing with a kenosis hymn, the kenosis hymn. Kenosis is the Greek word for emptying. The verb is kanao. And so he emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, we're told in verse 6. Although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself. That's kanao. And that's why we call this the kenosis hymn. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself and he took the form of of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being uh, found in appearance as a man. And all of those are the the things we've been dealing with. And then in verse 8, we're told he humbled himself. And how did he humble himself? He humbled himself. And, And the mechanism for that and the recognition of his humbling is important. Because if it tells us how he did it, then we've got an, an example to follow, right? It tells us how he did it. And since you and I are commanded to humble ourselves, the Bible does tell us that, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you at the proper time. And so we are expected to humble ourselves. And so in looking at Philippians 2, uh, 8 here, he humbled himself, and here's how he did it, by becoming obedient 
obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we recognize that obedience is a marvelous uh, blessing for us, especially when we obey and we keep on obeying and we obey and we don't stop and we don't draw a line in the sand and we don't reach a point where we say, all right, Lord, that's enough. I've obeyed long enough. Have I not done enough? Okay. And so he obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so this is what we're looking at here. Now, underneath the kenosis hymn, we've had some subpoints, and I'm not going to go back to, to do those. But it is, uh, it is interesting to see this. So under point E is when we looked at the point that he humbled himself. There's really two finite verbs here. He emptied himself and he humbled himself, right? And so when we're looking at it, if you ever diagram the sentences, you've got to diagram the sentences this way to realize that in verse 7 is the verb is kanao, he emptied himself. And then in verse 8, the verb uh, tapenao, that he humbled himself. Okay, those are the two primary verbs. And then there were expansions of those. Uh, how he emptied himself, we had three participles. How he humbled himself just has this one, that by uh, becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death. Now, um, so because he humbled himself, and the subpoints there, he then, the Father then has some things that the Father's doing. God the Father exalted Jesus Christ. And so this is picking up where we left off. God the Father exalted Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's curious to me. He exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So two activities for the Father. And uh, again, when you're diagramming your sentence and, you, and you're, you're seeing that, wow, Jesus did two things. Jesus emptied himself and he humbled himself. Now the Father's doing two things. The Father exalted Jesus Christ and the Father bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So if you're following in the outline then, this is main point six, sub point F. God the Father exalted Jesus Christ and not just bestowed upon him, grace bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. The verb is charizomai, and C-H-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I. And uh, we're very familiar with charis. Charis is our noun for grace. This is the verb that goes with that noun, all right? Charizomai. And uh, has 23 uses in the New Testament. Very frequently, how it's rendered in, in our Bibles, in the New American Standard Translation, very frequently this verb is rendered as forgive, very common to render it as forgive. And if you ever think that through, that should be no surprise at all because forgiveness is a grace thing, is it not? Are we forgiven? Of course we're forgiven. And are we forgiven by grace? Well, there's no other kind of forgiveness, okay? It's not something that we've earned or deserved. Forgiveness is a grace application. And so, um, but it wouldn't suit well here uh, as a translation, the context what doesn't follow well, and the the idea of forgiveness does not seem to be in the uh, in the context here. Instead, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, and I like the idea of bestowed grace bestowed. Uh, it didn't he didn't forgive on him the name which is above every name. He grace bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And uh, and so we have uh, the use there. All right. So I think if uh, 
you want to jot these verses down, Romans 8.32, 1 Corinthians 2.12, Galatians 3.18, and then uh, twice here in Philippians, Philippians 1.29 and Philippians 2.9. If you jot those references down, you've got a good assortment for charizomai applications uh, in which they are not rendered as forgive, all right? And uh, I think the bulk of the 23 uses, though, are rendered as forgive, and so... Uh, we don't mind that. Romans 8 and verse 32. Here's a fun passage. Um, Romans eight thirty one says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? That's charizomai. How will he not also with him, I guess you could render that forgive us, but freely give us I think is better. And that's in the, in the, uh, in the context because he did paradidomy, he did hand Jesus over. He was willing to hand Jesus over. And so if he's willing to do that, what will he not be willing to do now? What will he not be willing to bless us with now in Christ, with Christ, to freely give us all things? And so uh, clearly we have the principle there. How about 1 Corinthians 2.12? Another use of charizomai. 1 Corinthians 2.12. And this is not, again, not in a, in a context whereby forgiveness has no, uh, no, uh, nothing in view there for forgiveness, so you wouldn't want to translate it that way. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that <coughs> we may know the things freely given to us by God. The things grace given to us, given to us on a grace basis. We didn't earn them, we didn't deserve them. And uh, including, uh, of course, a living human spirit and the permanent dwelling of God the Holy Spirit and all the grace provision that we have to learn the Word of God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. And that's a grace provision, right? And this is why years and years ago, the pastor theme taught that as the grace apparatus for perception. <laughs> that's what it is. It's a grace apparatus for perception. And the fact that we can perceive the truth of the Word of God is totally a grace thing. As far as that goes, then my childhood pastor added an E on the end of gap. Big scandal in the doctrinal movement. Pastor Hugh Crowder will let you know. Huge, huge scandal when he put an E on the end of gap and turned gap into gape called it the grace apparatus for perception and edification and uh, stressed the application of the Word of God as well, also on a grace basis. See, And so uh, we have it there. How about Galatians 3.18? More charizomai. Galatians chapter 3 verse 18. And uh, if the uh, inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise, but God has granted it. God has freely given it, bestowed it to Abraham by means of a promise. See, again, forgiveness in, in a context there, we, you wouldn't want to render it as forgiveness. Uh, so we render it as granted or freely granted or grace supplied on the basis of a promise. 
And then the last two, of course, we started with Philippians 2.9. Uh, back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Understand, this is a grace gift. Do you like all of the other grace gifts God's given you? Do you like your eternal life? That was a grace gift. Do you like the redemption of your soul? That was a grace gift. Do you like being baptized into union with Christ? That was a grace gift. And you say, yeah, I like all the grace gifts God's given me. Okay, well, that includes this one too then, because to you it has been grace gifted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That too is a grace gift. And if you're celebrating all the grace gifts that God's given you, you better include that one also that we get to suffer. It is a privilege, it is an honor, it is a grace gift that we suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw to be in me and now here to be in me. So that's a, that's a grace thing too. And we can be thankful for that. All right. Now, when we lock in on this phrase, returning for the moment back to Philippians 2, um, we see that He humbles Himself unlike anyone else in the history of the universe It is the pinnacle of humbling. And so for this reason, we're told, God also highly exalted him. Uh, Or for this reason also. Let's put the also there. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. And when we talk about the for this reason also, all right, we got this quirky little uh, expression here, this, this dio kai, all right? And it links it together. What's following is, is, is keyed to what preceded it. It is causative, and we can't lose sight of that. For this reason, establishes the finished work of Christ on the cross as the causative basis for His exaltation from God the Father, or by God the Father, all right? If Jesus is not victorious at the cross, God the Father is not going to exalt Him the way this verse says that He does, okay? We want to be clear on that. When, uh, when the, the Son of Man comes up and, and you read about it in Daniel 7 and He stands before the Ancient of Days, He's going to stand there victoriously and the Ancient of Days is going to rule on His behalf. Or you go, to Roman, uh, you go to Revelation 4 and 5 and the Apostle John is weeping because no one's worthy to take the scroll and break the seals and, and, uh, and yet the Lamb comes forth and the Lamb is worthy. And they're singing the songs about His worthiness. Because he's victorious. He stands there as the lamb having been slain. All right? And so whatever passage you want to look at, the fact is, is that Jesus is victorious at the cross. And because he's victorious, there is a causative consequence. A causative consequence. And that's what we see here. And so it's spelled out explicitly. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. And we have it in Hebrews 2.9. We have it in John 10.17. We have it in Isaiah 53.12. We have it in many places that if the Son had failed, had He not been victorious, these consequences would not have been applied. They couldn't have been applied. How could they have been applied in any what-if scenario? See. So let's look at them again. Uh, Isaiah 53. We spent a bit of time in Isaiah 53 Wednesday night. So I may not camp on it quite so much this morning. But Isaiah 53, 12 has, uh, has the explicit statement. But even before that, I think uh, verse 11 has an explicit statement. I think verse 10 has an explicit statement. So, so join me here. Isaiah 53, and as we look at it, you'll see what I'm talking about. 
And we see the, uh, the consequences here. Consequences. So, um, and like I say, Wednesday night we, we read every verse of this chapter and, and we can spend a lot of time here. But when you notice uh, the substitutionary death of our Savior and what He did on our behalf, we, we get these, these deep, deep principles that, are, that come up in verse 10 and verse 11. And, and I don't want to lose this. So, the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. And the Him here in this case is Jesus Christ, the Lamb, this is our Savior. And we have both the Father and the Son that are in view here. We have God the Father and God the Son. And so when you read the Lord, right, when you read the Lord in this passage, we're talking about God the Father, and the Him in this passage is the uh, the servant, the one that grew up like a tender shoot, and the one that uh, that took our place, okay? The one that was silent like the sheep before its shearers was silent. So the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. God the Father was well pleased to crush Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to understand. That's where it starts, okay? And uh, this is the process that suited Jesus to be the justifier. It goes on. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... The Son has to be a volitional participant in this activity. So the Father's going to do this, but the Son must be on board with the, with the plan and program. He has to agree to it. He must volitionally go forth, see. And when you go back to Genesis and you see the typology on this, it's Abraham and Isaac walking together. They walk up the mountain together. Abraham has the faith that they're both coming back. He tells the servants, wait here. We will go up. We will come back. Tremendous faith on Abraham's part. And Isaac goes with him. And Isaac's carrying his own wood. Just as Jesus, of course, carried his own cross. So if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Remember, Jesus is the offering. He's also the priest. He's also the altar. The altar of his soul. Or the altar of the cross, depending on how you look at that. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. And the he and the his, and we work on that as this, he, the son, will see his, the son's offspring. And boy, that takes you to some fun stuff I'm going to be speaking on tomorrow with the fullness of time. And when does the son become a father? And who are the children of God the father? And who are the children of God the son? All right. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Remember, the will of God is always centered in his good pleasure. Sovereignty is always defined in not that he can do anything he wants to do, he can do his good pleasure, see, which is why he can't sin, he can't lie, there's things that God cannot do. And so a better definition of sovereignty is going to key it into his good pleasure. Notice now verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, notice that? The, the text is explicit. I want to make it explicit. I want to stress it this morning, just like out of Philippians. For this reason also, it's, it's explicit. For this reason also, as a result of the anguish of his soul. Okay? Because the Father was pleased to crush him. Jesus was pleased to be crushed. He accepted it. The anguish of his soul. As a result of the anguish of his soul. And by the way, this was the night before. This was Gethsemane. This was not Golgotha. 
He has the victory at Gethsemane that qualifies him to go to Golgotha. It was in Gethsemane that he said, my soul is troubled to the point of death. Stay here and pray with me. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The crushing happened in Gethsemane. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. The doctrine of satisfaction, the doctrine of propitiation. We teach it, we we tend to teach it from 1 John 2, that he was the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the whole world, right? And then we get into debates with Calvinists and other things. But the whole point is, satisfaction, the doctrine of propitiation, it is what it is and we teach it, but 1 John 2 doesn't tell us why he was satisfied. It just says that he was. And that he was satisfied for our sake and also for the whole world's sake. That he was satisfied, but doesn't tell us why. This verse tells us why. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Because it's through suffering that certain things are learned. And it's through suffering that the only way that certain things can be learned Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And Jesus, what he learned in the Gethsemane sufferings, the anguish of his soul is what satisfied the Father, that Jesus Christ can be the justifier, can go to the cross, and can volitionally do the work that the Father was asking him to do. All right? And that's powerful. That is absolutely powerful once you finally get on uh, an understanding on that. Because notice, it is, he will see it and be satisfied, and then it's by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Well, by his knowledge of what? What knowledge? How did he get that knowledge? What are we talking about here? God the Son's always been omniscient, but what happens here with Jesus Christ and his hypostatic union when he acquires the experiential knowledge through the suffering. By his knowledge, my righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Until the Father is convinced, that until he sees it, the Father sees it and says, now I know you are suited to be the justifier. And he then puts him on the cross. Right? Abraham went up the mountain and he was ready to plunge that knife and God stopped him, but he said, now I know that you fear God, that you believe me. And he says, now I know. And that's the the statement he makes with Abraham. Here, now I know. As a result, uh, he will see it and be satisfied. The Father satisfied that Jesus Christ is suited to be the justifier. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, Again, causative, in consequence, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide booty with the strong because, notice, causative, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Okay? The transgressors. So, this is what we're dealing with. The, work of, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it is the causative basis for His exaltation. 
How about John 10, 17? Gospel of John, chapter 10, 17. context here with uh, the door and the good shepherd and these I am passages and uh, why it's so advantageous to have a true shepherd and not have a hireling Uh, you know the hireling doesn't care (laughs) the hireling runs the shepherd stays there and deals with the with the wolves He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. Now notice, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Now let me ask you something. (laughs) it's causative there's no question that it's causative but is this the first time is this the only reason the father loves him is this the first day the father's ever loved the son did this just start at calvary did this just start was was jesus looking forward to going to the cross because finally he would have a father that would love him okay no you're you're too smart for that um the father has loved the son forever Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always been in perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect like-mindedness. So what's this passage saying here? What is particular about this significant, particular, um, specific aspect of love that's causative by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? The love application of in grace bestowing upon Him a name that is above every name. It is a name of love. You and I are going to get a name as well, by the way. To him who overcomes, we got a name we're, we're going to have as well someday. Okay, And if you've got a loved one that's passed on, they've got that name already. My mother's got that name already. And it's a name of love. It's a name of intimacy. It's a name that no one knows except God the Father and you. How intimate is that, right? Think about that. Isn't that beautiful? And so uh, we deal with that, and it is causative for God the Father loves the Son because, because, in a very particular way, and that's significant, okay? And in this, if we struggle to wrap our mind around it, then maybe the analogy would help. Just think of it, it's analogous to um, the indwelling, right? Because God's omnipresent, He's everywhere. So what's the big deal with saying that He indwells us, Okay? That's a particular somewhere that he happens to be. He happens to be inside of, of me. Okay? Even though in, in, omnis- in omni- omnipresence, obviously, he's everywhere. But particularly, he indwells me. See? And so it's both, both, uh, both things are true. God's eternally loved Jesus, but in particular, he has a unique love, a, a one-of-a-kind love for the one-of-a-kind son, for the one-of-a-kind moment when he went to the cross and he laid down his life and he took it up again. And so there's a very special love on that basis. And that's described there. And it's described there in a causative way for this reason. How about Hebrews 2.9? Also causative. 
We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Notice thou, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he may taste death, might taste death for everyone. Again, causative, it's because of, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So if he does not go to the cross, he does not get this glory and honor. If he does not go to the cross, or if he fails, he does not. And so in Gethsemane, where he has that victory, what's he, what's he saying? He's saying, Father, is it possible? <laughs> if it could be possible, let this cup pass by me. And yet, not my will, but thine be done. He, he surrenders that alternative thinking. He surrenders that and says no. He, he accepts the fact that the Father's plan is the only plan, that the alternative is not redeeming the human race. Because if he is not suitable to be the justifier, nobody is suitable to be the justifier. And so, if possible, let this cup pass by me. Not if the alternative is failure to redeem humanity. And so the victory, the victory then happens. All right, so it's causative. Now, it's causative, and yet it's also a grace thing. We don't want to lose that. It is a grace thing. I'm going to move on beyond. Okay, yeah. Don't lose sight of the fact that it's a grace thing, all right? And so we're going to talk about, did I include it? Nope, I did not. All right. So before I move on to point two, um, again, let's understand, for this reason, God grace supplied. God highly exalted him and grace supplied upon him the name that is every name. Now, I, I, I closed with this right before my closing prayer on Wednesday night, and I said, think about it. You got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, think, Sunday, think about it between Wednesday and Sunday. Why is this grace? <laughs> Why is it a verb for grace? Why is it a grace thing that the Father grace bestows upon him the name that is above every name? Because a big part of me wants to, I'll just speak for myself, I won't speak for, on your sake, but people will frequently think that because it's causative, that means it's earned or deserved. And I want us to separate those out. Because simply by virtue of being causative, in other words, contingent, because it's contingent upon something else happening, let's try to not make the contingency an equivalent statement with earned or deserved. Okay? And here's why. Because when we abandon, when we abandon grace... And when we start to apply the idea of earned and deserved, then we put ourselves into a, a spectrum of merit. We put ourselves into a place where we're striving to earn or deserve something because Jesus earned or deserved something. All right? And this verse does not tell us he deserved the name that is above every name. It tells us the Father grace bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Now, um, that uh, maybe I'm splitting hairs and maybe you think I'm stressing a point that is confusing or doesn't need to be stressed. But in my mind, it's a danger. Because if you work for something, 
then it's not grace, it's wages, it's what's due. But to the one who does not work but believes, then it's what he's given is, is grace. Okay? Remember the, the parable of the laborers and the, 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 the crowd that worked all day under contract? They said, we work for you for this such and such amount. And that's what they got paid at the end of the day. But then he was gracious towards those other workers. And they came in later in the day, later in the day, later in the day. The final group just got there one hour before closing time. Right? And they worked one, one rotten hour, right? One measly hour. And the, the, they got paid the same amount. He was gracious towards them. And those folks that had worked all day, they started grumbling, saying it's not fair, it's not right. And they got rebuked for that. And this, is, this comes to the point of what I'm dealing with here, is that when the Father bestows the rewards on Jesus, it's grace. When the Father bestows rewards on you and me at the judgment seat of Christ, it's grace because He doesn't have to reward us at all. Says who? Okay. See, here's the thing. Particularly if you're a, you know, a young student pastor and you're going to teach Judgment Seat of Christ, oh, I don't know, maybe 6 o'clock tonight. Here, let me tell you something. Okay? They are on the basis of deeds and they are contingent, but don't confuse contingency with what we've earned and deserved. Okay? Because God does not, never, never abandons His grace program. And the idea of earned and deserved, the idea that, well, I've done something. I've done something. I've taught 5,600 and however many classes, okay? 5,453 classes, whatever it is. You can't throw a number in God's face and say, all right now, pal, you owe me. He doesn't owe us anything. See, if, if you operate on a basis of works, on a basis of what we've earned and deserved, if you're working on a wages basis, I get that. Wages is what it is. You have an agreement, you have a covenant, a contract, a, a whatever, and I put in my eight hours and you're paying me five bucks an hour, so I want my 40 bucks. And I have a claim, and it is a just claim. It is a righteous claim over that person because I did the work and I have a righteous claim over them. I am entitled. I've earned it. I've deserved it. And if he doesn't pay up, then I have a righteous claim that I can take before a judge or I can, uh, there's other, you know, venues for resolving uh, uh, something on that basis, on a contractual basis, see. But to the one that does not work, but believes, to him, faith is reckoned as righteousness. And so by not working, by, by serving, by voluntarily going. Jesus Christ went to the cross, not under a contractual obligation to do so, not under a works basis that if you go to the cross, I will bestow upon you the name that is above every name. There was no contract between the Father and the Son spelling out, do this, you will deserve that. Jesus Christ went to the cross on a grace basis. Like those laborers that said, we will work for you and you will do whatever is right. Jesus Christ went to the cross trusting that the Father will do whatever is right. And so the reward that was bestowed is a grace reward. Everything you and I receive at the judgment seat of Christ is a grace reward. Assuming that what we're doing, we're doing in grace. 
And if we're not doing something in grace, well then, (laughs) it will be grace consumed by fire as wood, hand, stubble. And on a grace basis, we will lose those rewards. Because the Father is not obligated to give us anything. We have no claim on anything from God the Father. In any event, I think uh, it's worth stating and uh, chew on that and uh, think that through. All right. The pinnacle of humility within the boundaries of time produces the pinnacle of exaltation forever beyond time. Remember, if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you at the proper time. And there has never been a greater expression of humility than Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, when Jesus Christ hung on that cross in complete obedience to the will of the Father. And so the pinnacle of humility within the boundaries of time produces, it's causative, contingent, produces the pinnacle of exaltation forever beyond time. Jesus, uh, in fact, he spoke parables to communicate this truth, but his incarnation was the greatest application of it, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, how he emptied himself, how he humbled himself, how he went to the cross. So uh, you have these, and they they, they practically preach themselves. Luke 14, uh, verses 7 through 11. Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. And we were here the other day, too. Why were we here? Well, we were here in Proverbs the other day, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. How about that? We get this twice. We get this, the ladies get this, or the Wednesday morning crowd gets this on, uh, in Proverbs. And now we get it again here this morning. How about that? And so this is the, uh, this is the story where you get invited to, uh, to a, uh, a place. And uh, then you start to pick out, you know, clearly where you deserve to be seated because uh, you have such a high opinion of yourself and you assume that everybody else shares that same opinion, <laughs> okay? It's kind of self-evident that, that you're glorious, so you're entitled to sit up there. Problem is, of course, no one else shares that same inflated view that you, that you hold, and particularly the host. So when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. You know, you get bumped down because you weren't the, uh, the celebrity you thought you were. Uh, but when you were invited, go and recline at the last place. So then when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. What are you, what are you sitting way over there for? Okay. I mean, just assume when you walk into a place, you're the, the least important person there. In fact, what are you even doing here? <laughs> okay? It's a grace thing that you're even in the room. You know, you, kind of an accident, you got that invitation. So just assume that, uh, that you don't belong there at all. And uh, just assume that everybody's more important than you. And so then, if uh, you're invited to move up higher, say, oh, no, 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 I saved you a spot over here. You're supposed to be, uh, you know, what are you doing out there in the bleachers? You're supposed to be here in the luxury box with the owner's suite, okay, or whatever. Uh, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that's just kind of a practical earthly venue, a illustration 
you know, uh, as far as that goes. So yeah, okay, you have a shining moment at a dinner party. Great. But it's, it illustrates a principle that goes far beyond time and, and circumstances here on earth. It, uh, the, the rewards that are coming for us in eternity, um, that's what we're looking at. It's the most humble believers here on this earth that are going to have the maximum reward at, at the judgment seat of Christ. All right. He has additional uh, information for if you happen to be hosting the dinner party, uh, if you're giving a luncheon or a dinner, uh, don't just invite rich people and, and those you think can pay you back. Um, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Don't be prejudicial in your guest list for who you're inviting in. In fact, you can uh, be a, a, a real grace guy if you invite these other folks that probably haven't been to a dinner party in ages. And uh, you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. And so we have those illustrations there. That, that came out of Proverbs 14, by the way, when uh, we have neighbors that are poor and neighbors that are rich, and uh, we're commanded to love your neighbor, whether he's rich or poor, and uh, the application there. All right. Uh, also, before we leave this slide, remind ourselves of the fact that if Jesus is the pinnacle of, of maximum humility, well, what's the opposite of that is Satan and the, the, the rebellion of Satan. Uh, the five I wills are, are all about promote, self-promotion, self-exaltation, all about how glorious he is and how much more glorious he's going to be once he uh, rightfully takes his place. Uh, where the Father is now. He believes He will be like the Most High God. He believes that He can uh, claim an equality status with God. And um, it's just all self-promotion, self-exaltation. By the way, He's 0 for 5. He, he uh, was wrong in all five counts. He's a false prophet five times over. Announced all those I wills and none of them are true and never will be true as far as that goes. But when you exalt yourself, what's the Father going to do? He's going to humble you. He's going to bring you low. That's what the Father does. See, He will not share His glory with another. The fact that He does exalt Jesus Christ is, uh, is, is one of the lines of argument we use for the deity of Christ, that He is God in the flesh in, uh, in the application there. All right. The name that is above every name encompasses the angelic and human realms. The name above every name encompasses the angelic and the human realms. And it spans the ages to come on into eternity. The name that is above every name. You know, if you think about it, Adam got to name a lot of things. He got to name the animals. He got to name woman. But he didn't name any of the angels. The angels were around and they were named before him. They had their names already before Adam uh, was given his assignment. The, uh, the realm of angelity is not yet placed under the realm of humanity. It will be. It will be because all things are going to be subjected to Christ. And uh, at that point then, uh, we will have it. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. Presently, the, the humanity is still below angelity, and that's the way it's always been. But that's not the way it always will be. Humanity will be exalted because of Christ, because of the, the glory of Christ. In fact, angels were destined to be servants. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so we have truly, when you study angelity and humanity, we have the greatest 
a venue of all for identifying that the first will be last, the last will be first, that uh, although angels came first and they've always been mighty, they're about to be humbled. They're going to uh, receive a, a servant's power and glory status for all eternity. And whereas humans came second and have always been low and humble and mortal and, you know, I call us cockroaches a lot because we're just, we're, we're creatures that crawl around in the dirt. We're dust creatures, right? And, and, and it comes out, the disdain that fallen angels have for us comes out in Job and other places. So um, anyway, the, the first will be last, the last will be first. Uh, there's a reason why we've got patterns over and over again where the older serves the younger, where uh, Jacob is holding on to the heel of, of Esau. There's plenty of places where that pattern, where uh, the younger son is the one that's selected over the older son, um, tells the story. So Adam didn't name the angels, but First uh, Corinthians tells us we will judge the angels. We will rule this world. We are positionally in Christ, and that's a, that's a powerful truth. And even believing Jews and Gentiles that are not positionally in Christ like the bride of Christ, even Jewish and Gentile resurrected humanity is above the angelic realm in the millennial kingdom, in the fullness of time, and in an eternity future. See. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Give me another dress rehearsal for tomorrow. This is a text we're going to have at the Schaefer Conference. The book of Ephesians is a powerful chapter, is a powerful book, chapters 1, 2, and 3 in particular, that portray the blessings we have in Christ, the unfathomable riches in Christ. And they're right here in, in Ephesians. And it's just glorious. You have a one long run-on sentence that starts in verse 3 and, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes all the way down to verse 13. It's just, uh, verse 14. It's just a long, long sentence that takes us through the bulk of this chapter. And it describes everything we have in Christ. And it's, it's awesome to behold. Things that we have today that Old Testament believers would never dream of. And yet it's our estate in Christ. So every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Um, to the praise and glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. Capitalize the B there for in the Beloved One. That's Jesus Christ, the Beloved One. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Aren't these wonderful? Don't you love all of these? Of course you do. You're saved. He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. And all of this is just marvelous. Everything the Father's giving us here and now. And yet, notice, everything He's giving us in the here and now God's got his eye on something beyond the here and now. As it says in verse 10, with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of the times. Everything we have now, and yet the Father's not looking at now. He's looking beyond now. He's got something else in view, something greater in view. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. The summing up. Anakephalaiao, that's a headship verb. 
It's a verb for headship, summing up all things in Christ. That's not the church age. That's not here and now. All those blessings we have here and now, happy to have them, but it's preparing us for something coming up, preparing us for then and there. And we're not there yet. Okay? And the Father never lost sight of that. See, we, we lose sight of stuff. We get all absorbed in the here and now, and we, get, we take our eyes off the goal. God never takes his eyes off the goal with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens, things on the earth. Let me tell you, that's not the church age, because right now we don't see all things summed up in Christ. Quite a bit of this world is not in Christ. It's only the church that's in Christ. We got six billion unbelievers or more on the planet right now. They're not in Christ. Okay? Most of the of the things in, in this world today are not in Christ. But they're going to be. The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens are things on the earth. Now notice, as we start to look forward, as we start to get later in this uh, in this uh, chapter, we're going to start to see this. We also have obtained an inheritance, that's verse 11, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And you'll notice, how is it that we were the first? There were a lot of dispensations before us. Ah, but we were the first to hope in Christ. We were the first to hope with a completed work of Christ on the cross, with a victorious Savior, with Him seated at the Father's right hand in session, in victory. And notice, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is our pledge, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view. Look at that. We should keep something in view what the Father kept in view. Let's be looking forward. Let's look to that fullness of time. Let's keep our attention fixed. And so, uh, notice this. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Get down later in the chapter. Look how the chapter ends here. Now we get into some surpassing greatness. We get into some greater grace. Verse 20 talks about He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Why did He do that? What is the purpose? What is the point of having Him seated there in session as the head of the church? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Aha! Again, causative. Grace bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name. Specifically delineated here is rule, authority, power, and dominion. Those things that get abolished in 1 Corinthians 15. And every name that is named, not only in this age, uh uh-oh, wait a minute, but also in the one to come. Aha. See, the church age is awesome. The church age has unfathomable riches and glory. But they're simply a down payment for the age to come. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Not in this age, in the one to come. Hebrews 2.8 says we don't see it yet. All things are not yet in subjection. They're declared to be in subjection. They're designed to be in subjection. They're promised to be in subjection. But it hasn't happened yet on this earth or the new earth like they're going to be. Put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head 
over all things to the church. That's not church age yet, okay? That's fullness of time. In order to give all things to the church, or to be head of all, over all things to the church, he must first have all things subjected to him, which we don't see yet. Not in Ephesians, not in uh, Hebrews 2.8, right? It's not a church age application. It's the age to come. It's the fullness of time. In fact, he can't do it yet because the church isn't finished yet. Most of these eschatological promises to the church, in fact, every eschatological promise for the church requires a completed church. <laughs> How could he be head over all things to the church if we're still adding to it with every person that gets saved? And he can't be head of, over all things to the church until he first has all things subjected to him. All right. Notice, head over all things to the church, which is his body. And what's his body? The fullness of him who fills. Remember when I told you it's important that we identify him as the justifier so that we could be justified? He's also the filler. And who's the fullness? The completed bride, us. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills. All in all. All right, so we see that. Hebrews 1.4, another text that addresses this. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in, these, in the last of these days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. How powerful is that? You realize you and I were fellow heirs with the heir of all things? Man, that's beautiful. Through whom also he made the ages. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is he seated at the Father's right hand? Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The exaltation of humanity over angelity, and it's centered here, causative by the finished work of Christ on the cross. It wasn't the angel of the Lord that went to the cross. It was the God-man who went to the cross. And we are exalted in Him. He has this name that is above every name. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The final point here in this paragraph is point G. And this is what we'll come back to, uh, not this week, a week from today. Jesus Christ's ultimate destiny is the maximum glorification God the Father can actualize. God the Father is bringing about the greatest exaltation for His Son that He is able to actualize. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bend, every tongue will confess. The greatest glory imaginable from the Father who has envisioned every potential what if, every world, every option, every alternative world. If there, if there is a possibility of giving Him a greater glory, the Father would have chosen that instead of this. But we are observing the plan of God unfold in the plan A for God the Father. He doesn't have a plan B. And he has worked all things together for the good. All right? And this is his design 
for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is praying in that high priestly prayer that he, he wants to be restored to the glory that he had before, the Father said, oh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to get that glory back. Of course you're going to get that glory back. But you're going to get a greater glory. The Father's design is to bestow an even greater glory. And that's what He's pleased to do. And then the Son, enjoying that glory, receiving that glory, the Son is going to be delighted at the very end to hand it all to the Father. The Son's going to recognize the grace of the Father that glorified Him as the grace of the Son to give the kingdom back to the Father that God may be all in all. Okay? So we have uh, some of those concepts to deal with as well. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this morning and I thank you for the blessings that we have in Christ. And I pray, Father, as we study some of these things, that we would have the same perspective you have, that we, uh, that we appreciate the here and now, but that we also are mindful of, of what's coming, Father, that the here and now is simply preparation. It's a down payment, it's a deposit. And we're uh, being suited, even as our Savior was suited, for the things uh, yet to come. And so, Father, you designed your son, and he was faithful. He executed everything you designed for him to do, and he did so faithfully. He was suited to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Likewise, Father, we want to uh, learn what we need to learn through our suffering. We want to learn our lessons. And even as you prepared your son to be the king, you've, you are preparing us to be the bride. And, Father, um, sometimes it's not pleasant. <laughs> There's... There's humility testing, there's anguish of soul, and yet uh, this is what teaches us what we need to learn. So Father, open our eyes to observe these things, humble us to humble ourselves, and, uh, and be at work, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is